This is episode 176 of the Dear Discreet Guide Trouble at Work podcast. This episode is titled Death in Venice, the novella, the film, and the opera. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Dear Discreet Guide Trouble at Work, where we talk about work, working, and how to make work better. If it's work-related, we're on it. Who knew talking about work would be this much fun? I'm Jennifer Crittenden, a former CFO and host of the show. And thank you for joining our quest to improve our workplaces. Let's do this. Today we're going to be talking about the novella Death in Venice by Thomas Mann, who was a German novelist, short story writer, social critic, philanthropist, essayist, and the 1929 Nobel Prize winner in literature after the publication of his novel, The Magic Mountain. Death in Venice, the novella, was published in 1912. It's about a renowned German writer who's suffering from writer's block, and he goes to visit Venice and becomes enamored from a distance with a beautiful Polish boy during a cholera epidemic. And I'll read here a bit so you can get a sense of the book. Here he's describing his writer's block. And yet he was quite aware what was the cause of that affliction. It was a desire to flee. He had to admit to himself this yearning for the distant and the novel, this desire for liberty, for being free of burden, for being able to forget, the desire to escape his work, the commonplace location of a rigorous, frigid, and ardent duty. He thought of his work thought of the point at which he had to terminate his effort today, just like yesterday, and which seemed to yield neither to patient care nor a decisive blow. He inspected it again, tried to break or dissolve the stoppage, but aborted his attack with a feeling of disgust. These were no insurmountable hindrances. What immobilized him were the scruples of listlessness, which masqueraded as an insatiable discontent. Discontent had already been considered by the adolescent as the character and innermost nature of genius, and he had sought to restrain his emotions because he had realized that they are too easily contented with approximations and half-hearted perfection. Was that repressed sentiment now avenging itself by leaving him? by refusing to carry his art, and by taking away all his delight with form and meeting? Not that he produced bad art. That was one of the advantages of his age, that he could be sure of his mastery in every moment. But he himself, while his nation honored it, was enabled to enjoy it, and it seemed to him as if his work lacked those characteristics of fiery inventiveness which, as creations of joy, contribute more to the pleasure of the readership than some inner meaning. And he talks more about his solitary work and the kind of discipline that it takes to pursue that kind of work. And what kind of heroism would be more timely than this one, 
Gustav Aschenbach was the poet of all those who were laboring on the brink of exhaustion, the overburdened and worn out, who still tried to keep upright, those moralists of performance who, being lanky and of limited means, through willpower and clever management can conjure the effect of greatness, at least for a time. They are numerous. They are the heroes of our age, and they are all recognized themselves in his work. They found themselves vindicated, elevated, celebrated in it, thanked him generously, and spread his name. So Gustav von Aschenbach had been ennobled in his home country, which gave him the fawn in his name. And there are a bunch of potential allusions to various artists, which I thought that paragraph um, might be kind of hinting to us about. First to the homosexual German poet August von Platten Hallermunde. Uh, there are allusions in the novella to August's poems about Venice. And like Aschenbach, he died of cholera in an Italian island. Hope I didn't just give away a giant spoiler there, but yes, death in Venice is about a death. Gustav is nearly an anagram also of Auguste, and Auguste the poet was born in Asbach. So lots of uh, hints there that those things are related But there also seem to be some connections to Gustav Mahler, well, like his first name. And note that the movie that was made of the novella in 1971 by Lucino Visconti, which we'll talk a little bit more about later, reimagines Aschenbach actually as a composer and uses a bunch of Mahler's music for the soundtrack. So we're getting a little circular here. Mann had met Mahler, actually, in 1911, so the year before uh, he wrote the book and was very impressed by him, apparently, and was really shocked by Mahler's death in Vienna, actually. And also, uh, in the novella, Aschenbach has kind of the same facial appearance as Mahler. So Aschenbach, uh, here in this excerpt, is kind of looking for a break, right, to help him out of his writer's block. What he was looking for was the unfamiliar and unrelated, which was indeed reached rather easily, and so he stayed on a celebrated Adriatic island situated not far from the Istrian coast with the gaily ragged people that conversed in an alien-sounding language and with picturesquely broken cliffs where the sea was open. Unfortunately, heavy rain and an oppressive atmosphere, a parochial and completely Austrian company in the hotel, and the lack of calm and easy communion with the sea, which only a soft sloping and sandy beach can afford, caused him distress, prevented in him the feeling that he had reached his destination. There could be no question about it. What was he supposed to do here? He had erred. He should have traveled to that other location in the first place. He did not hesitate to immediately cancel his abortive stay on the island. One and a half weeks after his arrival on the island, at hazy dawn, a fast launch took him and his luggage back to the military harbor, and there he only went ashore to directly step onto the damp deck of a ship bound for Venice. I have to comment, it's not the only time in the book that we hear Austrians being denigrated. 
And then we have this description of this really nasty character. And there will be more nasty characters in this book. Amon definitely is great at describing kind of creepy characters, which really show up well in the movie, as you can imagine. So here he's talking about uh, how he gets to Venice. It was a vehicle under an Italian flag, stricken with years, outmoded, serene and somber, in a cave-like, artificially lit berth into which Aschenbach had been instantly ushered with grinning courtesy by a hump-backed and dirty sailor after setting foot onto the ship, there sat behind a table with his hat slanted on his head and with a cigarette butt between his lips, a goatish man who had the physiognomy of an old-fashioned circus director who with artificially easy demeanor registered the nationalities of the travelers and handed them their tickets. To Venice, he repeated Aschenbach's request, straightening his arm and pushing the quill into the pulpy remains of an inclined inkstand. First class to Venice. Here you are, sir. And he wrote with huge loops, dispensed some blue sand from a can onto the writing, let the sand run into a clay bowl, folded the paper with yellow and bony fingers, and continued his writing. A happily chosen destination, he chattered, meanwhile. Ah, Venice, a magnificent city, a city full of irresistible attraction to the well-educated, both due to its history and its present charms. The smooth dispatch of his movements and the empty talk that accompanied them had something stupefying and distracting, almost as if he feared the passenger might waver in his determination to go to Venice. He speedily cashed the money and let the change fall onto the dirty tablecloth with the dexterity of a croupier. "'Have a nice day, sir,' he cried with a thespian bow. "'It is my honor to convey you. Next, please,' he cried with a raised arm, pretending his business was lively, even though there was nobody else around who needed a ticket.'" Really great imagery, right? I hope you can imagine how that would uh, come across in the film. So Aschenbach arrives at the Hotel des Bains in Venice, which, interesting coincidence, is exactly where Mann himself had stayed with his wife and brother in 1911, the year before, and had in fact met a beautiful Polish boy that his wife Katya describes in her book that was published in 1974. We'll describe that in a moment. Uh, but here how, here's how Mann describes how Aschenbach meets the boy. It was a group of adolescents and bare adults under the supervision of a governess around a small table, three young girls, perhaps between 15 and 17, and a long-haired boy of about 14 years. With astonishment, Aschenbach noticed that the boy was perfectly beautiful, his countenance pale and gracefully reserved, surrounded by honey-colored locks, with its evenly sloped nose, the lovely mouth, the expression of alluring and divine earnestness, was reminiscent of Greek statues from the most noble period, and with all its perfection of form, it had such a personal appeal that the onlooker thought he had never encountered anything similar, either in nature or in art." 
Mellowness and affection visibly ruled his existence. One had abstained from cutting his arresting hair. Like the statue of the boy with thorn, it curled onto the forehead, over the ears, and even more so in the nape. An English sailor suit, the voluminous sleeves of which were tapered towards the ends and which surrounded the delicate joints of his still childlike and narrow hands, contributed with its strings, bows, and embroideries an air of wealth and fastidiousness. He was sitting in semi-profile from Aschenbach's point of view, one foot in front of the other, with an elbow leaning in on the armrest of his basket chair, his cheek comforted by his closed hand, in an attitude of relaxed decorum and completely without the submissive stiffness that his sister seemed to be used to. Was he sick? Because the white of his skin contrasted like ivory with the golden somberness of the adjacent curls? Or was he simply a coddled favorite child, carried by partial and capricious devotion? Aschenbach was inclined to believe that. Almost every artistic individual has a luxurious and treacherous propensity to recognize beauty, creating inequity, and to render homage to aristocratic entitlement. And now here from Katya's book. She says, All the details of the story, beginning with the man at the cemetery, are taken from experience. In the dining room on the very first day, we saw the Polish family, which looked exactly the way my husband described them. The girls were dressed rather stiffly and severely, and the very charming, beautiful boy of about 13 was wearing a sailor suit with an open collar and very pretty lacings. He caught my husband's attention immediately. The boy was tremendously attractive, and my husband was always watching him with his companions on the beach. He didn't pursue him through all of Venice. That he didn't do. But the boy did fascinate him, and he thought of him often. So the boy in the book is Tadzio, but he's actually based on a real live boy whom one of Mon's translators actually tracked down. His real name or nickname was Adzio, and it turns out he was only 10 when he was in Venice. And he himself didn't realize that the book was about him until he saw the film. There's now a book about him called The Real Tadzio. All right, here's a bit more from Mon about Aschenbach's preoccupation with the boy. Inside, the serving had begun, but the young Poles remained seated around the little tables, and Aschenbach, sitting snugly in his chair, not to mention having a favorable view of something beautiful, lingered along with them. And here's some more description. He came in through the glass door and ambled through the silence diagonally across the room to his sister's table. His walk was very graceful, both in his stance and in the movement of the knees, the way his feet touched the ground, very light, at the same time tender and proud, and made more appealing through the childlike self-consciousness with which he looked up and down two times while crossing the room. Smiling with a soft word in his fuzzy-sounding language, he took his place, and now that he presented the onlooker with his full profile, Aschenbach was taken by surprise again, even frightened by the godlike beauty of that human child. That day the lad was wearing a light suit of blue and white fabric with a bow of red silk on his breast and a simple white collar. 
above that collar, which did not even fit the rest of the suit very elegantly. The flower of his crown rested with unequaled charm, the head of Eros, with the yellowish tint of Parisian marble, with exquisite and somber brows, temples and ear, covered by the dark and soft curls of his hair." Well, well, thought Aschenbach, with that cool approval of the specialist, with which artists at times cloak their transports of delight in the face of a masterwork. Woo! So Aschenbach is getting quite obsessed, but he's also actually starting to feel not completely well in terms of health. And he decides to leave the city after he dilly-dallies in the dining room, well, because Tazio is there. And then through a twist of fight, his luggage is sent in the wrong direction. So after he discovers that, he decides to go back to the hotel and wait for its return. And then, interestingly, even when the luggage is returned, he still doesn't leave. And at this point in the book, but especially in the movie, the reader or the watcher, definitely me, in the audience started to feel very uncomfortable, like this sense of doom and frustration, kind of like one of those dreams that you can't get out of, like you can't leave and catch your plane or whatever it is that you're supposed to be doing. So here's how Mon describes it. The pleasant regularity of this life had cast its spell on him. The soft and glowing mildness of this conduct had filled him with amazement. What a stay indeed, which combined the attractions of a civilized seaside life on a southern beach with the cozy closeness of the wonderfully wondrous city. Often, almost constantly, Aschenbach saw the boy, Tadzio, a limited space, a different order to everyone's life, effected it that the arresting one was close to him most of the day with short interruptions. He saw and met him everywhere, in the ground floor rooms of the hotel, on the refreshing boat trips to the city and back, in the marvel of the square, and frequently in between on streets and paths if luck contributed but mainly and with gratifying regularity, the mornings at the beach gave him ample opportunity to study the beautiful figure devoutly. This predictability of happiness, these daily recurring fortunate circumstances made the stay dearer to him and let every day seem like a Sunday. And I'm leaving out a bit here. That way the foreignness of the boy turned speech into music, A wanton sun bathed him in a prodigal splendor, and the majestic view of the distant sea always served as a backdrop to his figure. Soon the onlooker knew every curve and pose of that sophisticated body that so freely exhibited itself, greeted again joyfully every already familiar pretty feature, and could find no end to his admiration and tender sensual pleasure." Never had the joy of words seemed sweeter to him. Never had he been so conscious of Eros being in the words as in the dangerous and precious hours in which he, in full sight of his idol and under his canvas, worked on his little treaties, those one and a half pages of exquisite prose, the honesty, nobility, and emotional deepness of which caused it to be much admired within a short time. 
It is probably better that the world knows only the result, not the conditions under which it was achieved, because knowledge of the artist's sources of inspiration might bewilder them, drive them away, and in that way nullify the effect of the excellent work. Strange hours, strangely unnerving exertion, strangely fertilizing intercourse between mind and body. When Aschenbach put aside his work and left the beach, he felt exhausted, shattered even, and it was as if his conscience was accusing him as if after a debauchery. All right. Is it just me, or are you feeling a tiny bit uncomfortable with this? Some of it definitely reminded me of the endless droning on about Lolita by Nabokov, where eventually part of you is like, really? Really, that stirring in your loins justifies all these words? Maybe that's just me. Now the real plot thickens. Tomas Mann documented in his diary uh, his own struggles, you might say, with feelings of homosexuality and also his feelings toward his 13-year-old son, although those writings did come later after the publication of Death in Venice. So he writes about his son, to whom I feel very drawn, in love with him these days, who enchants me right now. Uh, It talks about in his bath is terribly handsome. He also says, I find it very natural that I am in love with my son, and also some discussion about discovering him naked. That boy, Klaus, was open in his own writings about his sexuality and was critical of his father's quote-unquote sublimation. And interestingly, Tomas Mann's daughter and another son came out later in their lives. But back to Venice. Uh, Aschenbach follows the boy, but still never can find the courage to speak to him. Aschenbach was no longer in a mood for being self-critical. The taste and mental state of his years, self-respect, maturity, and late simplicity kept him from analyzing his motives and from deciding if he did not act because of his conscience or because of weakness. He was confused. He feared somebody might have witnessed his attack and subsequent defeat. He was afraid of ridicule. Otherwise, he jested to himself about his comically holy terror. And and he quotes, Aghast like a cock who lets his wings hang limply in a fight, he thought. And eventually, the boy notices, surprise, surprise, and they kind of coyly play around with each other with glances and so forth. And then one evening, the boy smiles at him. And many, many paragraphs later, you're actually starting to hope that somebody will catch something or something will happen. But four weeks later, he goes to the barber, and he now visits him regularly, but this time he picked up on a word that made him suspicious, and a man had mentioned a German family that had left shortly after his arrival and added flatteringly, But surely you will stay, sir. You are not afraid of the malady. Aschenbach looked at him. The malady, he repeated. The talker fell silent, tried to look busy, ignored the question, and when it was asked again more urgently, he declared he did not know anything and tried to distract with embarrassed eloquence. 
All right, so at this point, Aschenbach also begins to notice a strange smell. And printed notices begin to appear around the town, warning people about the water and of consuming shellfish, oysters, and mussels that come from the water. Aschenbach begins to ask questions, but the store owners just say it's a precautionary measure. And he wants to ignore it because he explains, because passion like crime does not like everyday order and well-being and every slight undoing of the bourgeois system. Every confusion and infestation of the world is welcome to it because it can unconditionally expect to find its advantage in it. So Aschenbach felt a somber content about the cover-up of the terrible happenings in the grimy streets of the city that merged with his own innermost secret happenings in the covertness of which he also had an interest. Because the lover was troubled by nothing except that Tadzio might depart and realize with terror that he would not know how to go on in life in that event. At this point, he is full-on stalking him, follows him to a church and through the canals uh, with the gondolier. He goes on, bent on learning the latest about the situation regarding the malady, he went through the local papers at the coffee houses of the city because they had disappeared from the table in the hotel lobby. Claims and retractions were following each other. The number of cases and of deaths were supposed to be 20 or 40 or a hundred, and right after that the whole notion of an epidemic was refuted, or at least limited to a few single cases of introduction from outside. Warning qualms, protests against the dangerous game of the officials were interspersed. Certainty was impossible to attain. And still the loner was aware of a certain entitlement to learn the truth, and even though left out, he found it curiously satisfying to ask those in the know probing questions and force them to lie, since they had agreed to keep silent about it. One day at breakfast, he did so with the manager, that little soft-spoken man in the French frock coat, who was greeting and attending to the guests, and also stopped at Aschenbach's table for a few words. Why in the name of God, inquired he in the most casual tone, had they been disinfecting Venice for some time? And the guy quotes, It is wholly a measure of the police to keep all kinds of disruptions of public health in check that could be caused by the exceptionally hot weather. The police is to be commended, retorted Aschenbach. Yeah, so at this point, you know, the reader and the watcher of the movie, the tension keeps rising, getting worse and worse. And one night there are performers, and Tadzio stands near Aschenbach. It's a very strange, kind of surreal scene where a guitarist is uh, wooing the crowd. And Aschenbach asks the guitarist about the disinfectant when he comes to get a tip from him. And then the guitarist does this totally absurdist and derisive song, really creepy in the movie. And I'll describe it here from the book. 
His laughter exploded, so real that it was infectious, so that the listeners became cheerful without a definite reason, and that seemed to increase the singer's giddiness. He flexed his knees, he slapped his thighs, he held his sides. He no longer laughed, he howled. He pointed with his finger at the merry society as if nothing could be funnier, and finally everybody was laughing in the veranda and the garden, including the waiters, elevator attendants, and servants in the door. Aschenbach no longer reclined in his chair. He sat erect, as if trying to fight or flee. But the laughter, the wafting hospital odor, and the closeness of the beautiful boy immobilized him like an inescapable spell. And so eventually the singer comes to collect more tips, and then something happens. There he suddenly cast off his mask of the funny jinx, straightened himself up, stuck out his tongue at the guests on the terrace, and disappeared into the darkness. So Aschenbach then goes to a travel agency to ask what Mann refers to as the fatal question. And he first gets the same old story. And then, I'll read from the book. That is, he continued, the official version, which people are trying to uphold. I will tell you there is something else to it. And then he told the truth in his honest language. For several years, Indian cholera had shown an increased tendency to spread and travel. Born in the sultry swamps of the Ganges Delta, ascended with the mephitic odor of that unrestrained and unfit wasteland, that wilderness avoided by men, in the bamboo thickets of which the tiger is crouching, the epidemic had spread to Hindustan, to China, to Afghanistan and Persia, and even to Moscow. And while Europe was fearing the specter might make its entrance over land, it had appeared in several Mediterranean ports. The north seemed to have been spared, but in May of that year, the horrible Vibrios was discovered in the emaciated and blackened bodies of a sailor and of a greengrocer. The deaths were kept secret, but after a week it had been ten, twenty, or thirty victims. And in different quarters, an Austrian man had died in his hometown under unambiguous circumstances after he had vacationed for a few days in Venice, and so the first rumors of the malady appeared in German newspapers. The officials of Venice responded that the public health situation had never been better and ordered the necessary measures to fight the disease, but the foodstuffs had probably been infected. Meat, vegetables, and milk contributed to more deaths, and the tepid water of the canals was particularly to blame. It seemed as if the disease had become more contagious and virulent. Cases of recovery were rare. Eighty of a hundred infected persons died in the most horrible fashion because the malady came in the particularly severe form called dry cholera. Uh, I'm actually going to skip this description for you here. We don't need to hear this right now. But the fear of general damage, regard for the recently opened exhibition of paintings in the municipal gardens, for the enormous financial losses that threatened the tourist industry in case of a panic, had more impact in the city than love of truth and observation of international agreements. It made feasible the official policy of secrecy and denial. 
The highest medical official had resigned, filled with indignation, and had been replaced with a more docile person. The people were aware of that, and the corruption at the top, together with the reigning uncertainty, the state of emergency caused by the suffering all around, caused a certain demoralization, an encouragement of unsavory antisocial tendencies, which took form as debauchery, wantonness, and a rise of criminal behavior. Against the normal rule, many drunken men were noticeable in the evenings. Vile rabble made the streets unsafe in the night. Robbery and even murder happened again and again. For two times, it had already proven that supposed victims of the epidemic had in reality been killed by their relatives with poison, and prostitution became more obtrusive and excessive in a way that was normally more associated with the south of the country or the Orient. Finally, the Englishman came to the most important thing. You would be well advised, he concluded, to leave today rather than tomorrow. The quarantine cannot be further away than a few days at best. I thank you, Aschenbach said, and left the office. So now he has a moral dilemma, right? He has this information, and so he begins to consider whether or not he should warn the Polish family and spare the child or selfishly keep silent. Instead, he goes to the barber, who convinces him to dye his hair back to his original black and also to redo his eyebrows, and it, he adds color to his cheeks and his lips. So this, he takes on this really ghoulish look in the movie, and I'll describe that scene briefly. A minor correction, he said, putting the finishing touches on Aschenbach's exterior. Now the gentleman can call in love without hesitation. And Aschenbach now begins to feel very, very sick. And Mann goes on. A tepid breeze had started. It rained only occasionally and in small amounts, but the air was humid, thick, and filled with putrid scents. Wafting, flapping, and swishing filled one's ears, and Aschenbach, feverish under his makeup, felt as if wind spirits of an evil kind were at work, like ugly seabirds digging into the condemned one's food. And at this point, everyone is leaving. Aschenbach is at the beach one last time when Tadzio is there. And then I'll just say the end. Uh, the end is very quick. All right, so to recap where we are, the novella was published in 1912, and then Lucino Visconti's movie came out in 1971, starring Dirk Bogard, done in English. And in that film, Visconti makes him a composer with lots of music. And then Benjamin Britten turned it into an opera as his last work, which was uh, first performed in 1973, and there he turns the protagonist back into a writer. There's a lot of sensitivity, clearly, a lot of thinking that goes into how to portray this relationship between Aschenbach and the boy, as you can imagine. In the novella, the boy is clearly aware of Aschenbach, but never speaks to him, only glances at him, and in that one case, swoon, actually smiles at him. In the opera, the boy is portrayed by a dancer who has a non-speaking role, so they never converse. And in the movie, the boy, I would say, appears to be more aware of him. 
but I'll leave his signaling for you to experience in the movie, since the movie really is lovely if you're in the right mood. Or just watch the trailer, since they do in the trailer what they so often do in terrible trailers. They give a lot of the movie away. There's so much more to say about Thomas Mann, who was certainly a brave man, if nothing else, being willing to take on you know, these really sensitive topics in his own life and in his work, although his diaries were not made public until long after his death. And as I like to do, as you know, I'd like to read uh, two different Amazon reviews. Uh, the first one, uh, quite negative from Elena. She gives it one star. And she, uh, her title is, I guess you have to have a PhD to want to read this much self-aggrandizement. She says, I'm a decently smart, well-educated lady working on my second degree and capable of expressing myself thoughtfully. A hundred years old or not, why would anyone want to endure this man's narcissism for a hundred pages? I call that torture, and I would rather choke on my own vomit than finish this book. And then we have a very positive review from Kevin F. Tasker, who titles his review, Stylish, Dark, Beautiful, Profoundly Sad, Precursor to Lolita. So he writes, Death in Venice is a chilling, cerebral, and beautifully rendered novella. An aging academic's Petrarchan fawning over a gilded youth in a city of supreme decadence. Mann's book seems to have prefigured Lolita as an examination of a deranged, if eloquent, man's search for the ideal beauty personified. It takes a while for things to get going, even in such a brief story as we're asked to wade patiently through our in parentheses, anti-heroes, convoluted theories, and related philosophical rambling early on. But this ultimately lends some texture to his later unflagging hunt for the boy throughout Venice. As things get going and Mon starts to gun the narrative throttle, to some extent, we feel the suffocating reality of this cloistered, opulent, gradually decaying world. It is impossible to read the book and not feel the heat, smell the canals, and experience the perpetual sting of the protagonist's demented yearning. Definitely worth a read for any student of life or literature, and really anyone curious to take a peek into the abyss of an unsettled mind in an ostensibly peaceful place about to be rocked by misery. Really good job, Kevin. Now, you might have noticed we didn't talk very much about Mon's life, even though I posted last week that he was a very interesting guy. Uh, But we'll have another shot at it. Mon wrote another book about illness and a sanatorium in the mountains, which seems appropriate since I myself now am up in the mountains, which are full of people escaping coronavirus in their hometown. So we'll take up his book, Magic Mountain, next week and talk more about his life. Thanks for listening, everybody. Well, the pandemic isn't really over, but it seems as though we've moved into a different phase where our lives have a bit more normalcy. As a result, we're adjusting the format of the show back to fewer, more lengthy episodes airing on Tuesday and Friday and sometimes on Sunday, since those Sunday literary episodes have been very popular. Speaking of which, our downloads have exploded during the pandemic, so thank you for your patronage. 
If you like what we do, you can support the show through our Patreon page. Another way to support us, which doesn't cost anything, is to follow us or like us on Podomatic.com, and that will help us increase our visibility. Also, we'd love to hear from you. Drop us a comment about who you are, what you like, or if you have a comment about the show. And finally, I also run a professional training company for people who want to advance in their careers with courses on communication skills, executive presence, and accent reduction. You can find out more at discreteguide.com, D-I-S-C-R-E-E-T-G-U-I-D-E. Please take care and let's talk again soon.